God, I give you thanks that you not only have called us to worship you, but you call us into this large family of brothers and sisters around the world. And it is a tremendous privilege to be part of that family and to be blessed by others, by them, in this case, by a Kurdish church, and we are able in a small way perhaps to bless them. God, we pray for this community today, the Kurdish church in Lebanon, as they continue to be your hands and your feet, as they continue to serve people that they touch with very basic realities, rent, electricity, food, support, friendship. God, I thank you that you are present through your people. Thank you that we can be part of this story. We are part of this story. That we too are called to be your hands and your feet. I give you thanks for the church around the world and particularly this community in Lebanon. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is truly, it's been, it's just been an absolute privilege to journey with, um, well, what began with Walid and Kifi are sitting over there, so I'll wave to them. Some of you online can't see them, but uh, that journey began walking with them, and they've become dear friends, and then uh, Walid's brother, and now, you know, it just continues to ripple out, and it has just been such an honor and a privilege. So... Let's shift gears a tiny bit. We are in a um, sort of a mini-series within a much larger series. The larger series, A Year of Biblical Literacy, and that gets broken into sort of smaller parts. And we're in a part of the story of Israel as we're going, as Susan has indicated, we're in the season of Lent. So as we're moving, approaching Easter, and the, the story will, will turn at that point. But as we approach Easter, we're in this period of time... Uh, in Israel's history called the exile, where, where the people of uh, Israel have been uh, deported from the promised land. Um, let me just pause and just say, connected to the year of biblical literacy, there was encouragement to you all to read the Bible alongside of our preaching plan. So it doesn't always line up exactly, but we've been inviting you to read uh, large portions of scripture. For, for the most part, it's all been in the Old Testament at this point, because that's what we've been preaching through. And uh, come Easter time, that'll switch, and we'll start looking at the stories of Jesus. But let me put a plug in for you. If you haven't been following that reading plan, or if you started and somewhere along the way you fell off um, and, and you're not on track anymore or whatever, let me just invite you, actually, so as of yesterday, we start reading in the New Testament. It's a bit earlier then our preaching schedule, uh, come Easter Sunday, we'll start looking at the story of Jesus more completely. But now would be a great time to relink into that plan. You read, you're beginning to read Matthew today, or yesterday, actually, you would have started. So this is a great time to relink into that plan. That plan, you can find it on the website in multiple places. Uh, go under community group resources. That probably be the quickest and easiest way to find it. There's if you just scroll on our homepage, there's a button that says community group resources. Click there, 
and you'll find the reading plan. Or you can find it under Sermons Plus, so you might have to do a little bit more digging there, but uh, Sermons Plus, Year of Biblical Literacy, and then it shows up numerous places, but really want to urge you to read the Bible. This is a real treasure. Um, We believe that the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus, and we've been trying to pay attention to that story of Israel, in this case, as it's pointing toward Jesus. We're sort of approaching that point at Easter and beyond where Jesus comes into full view. And I just, anyway, I'm going to repeat myself. Link into that Bible reading plan. If you just think, I don't understand the Bible or I don't love reading it, just try again. Uh, Journey with us in that reading, and we'll try to line up our preaching as much as we can with that plan. Okay, so back to the exile. We're not quite into the story of Jesus. We're approaching the story of Jesus. The exile is this period of Israel's history where Uh, after um, lots of warnings by God to say, if you continue to uh, ignore the covenant that I've made with you, if you continue to ignore the prophets who I've sent to warn you to be faithful to me and to worship me alone, uh, I'll actually, you'll be deported, you'll be exiled, Uh, which is precisely what happened in their history. And bunch of their people get taken off first to the um, Assyrian capital and, and places, and later on to the Babylonian capital and other places. And this is where we're picking up the story. We're looking at the story of Daniel and some of Daniel's friends. And these are some of these are familiar stories, right? Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And But just understand how they fit in the larger story of Israel, right? These are Jewish people living in a foreign land trying to figure out how do we live here? How do we live when everybody around us doesn't actually believe in the God we believe in? They don't worship this God. What does faithfulness look like? What does it look like to be the people of God in this foreign place? And as I've said a few times already in this portion of um, our sermon series, that's where we find ourselves. I, I, you, we all find ourselves in, a, in, in Western Canada in a culture that's largely forgotten about or is not interested in God, largely. And I've staked my life on this. And yet the people around me just sort of, it's irrelevant to them, largely. And so what does it look like for me to follow Jesus and to worship God in a context where the people around me aren't thinking about God? Or they may have other gods and and other focuses. And so these questions do echo out. This isn't just ancient story. Now, this morning, we're going to look very briefly at a very familiar story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know this story. If you've been to Sunday school ever in your life, you will have heard this story. Right? You know the story. The king sets up this big statue and says you can only worship this statue or when music plays, you need to worship this statue. Uh, there's three men that are, are um, highlighted. There might have been others, but we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Jewish exiles. They worship the one God. And they say, well, we're not going to bow down to that idol. Uh, the king calls them in for questioning and... Um, And they refute him and say, we're not going to do this. And then they get thrown into the fiery furnace as a consequence. That story is familiar. The high point of the story, let me just read what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king. That will, I think, show up here on the screen. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, this is their words to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, which would have been the consequence, right? If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. This next part, gold. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. That's the key moment where they just say, you know, we're not doing this. You ask us to do this, and for us to be faithful as people of God in this context, we're not. We're drawing a line here in the sand. And anyway, you know the story. I'm not going to read the whole story. Instead, we're going to listen to it uh, in a song. So my wife, Sherilyn, has... uh, was asked to write a kid's song for the kids. They've been doing this whole unit on the book of Daniel as well. So this is a kid's song. She wanted me to be sure that you knew that. Um, It is, uh, let's just listen. It'll be the story, but it'll be the story coming to you in song form. So let's just listen in. That's what I thought, too. I I think she's kind of cute. I'll ask her out for lunch today. Um, Right, so there's the story in song. You know this story. It's a familiar story. Let me just couch it in the larger story. This 
command to not bow down to idols has deep roots in Scripture. It's not just a one-off. It's not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all of a sudden said, well, we don't want to bow down to that idol. This is deeply embedded. These commands show up in the, uh, right of the, well, all along, really, but let me just pick it up from the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are given twice. I'll read it here from Deuteronomy. The first two commandments deal with this issue, right? Here's God speaking. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Second command, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven and above or on the earth below or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." And repeatedly in the history, in the story of Israel, the commandments are are reiterated to say, don't make idols, don't worship foreign gods. And in fact, if you, if we, as you followed the story of Israel, as you've read it and as you've heard it spoken here, that's part of the problem is that Israel followed other gods, and it's couched in that language. They committed um, idolatry. They worshipped foreign gods, and they set up other statues and places of worship. And this is precisely why, at least one of the reasons why, prophets were sent again and again to say, don't worship these gods. You are to worship the one God who brought you out of the land of slavery, who is longing to set you free. This is why the Israelites are now in the nation of Babylon. This is why they are exiles, because they committed idol worship, among other things. And so when they're confronted with this big statue they need to bow down to, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are drawing from a deep reservoir of biblical instruction that says, do not bow to idols. This theme gets carried over into the New Testament, by the way. And there's lots of instruction and and words given about um, idol worship. And so when Paul uh, goes to, and and idol worship is still very uh, prevalent in New Testament culture. So Paul goes to um, Athens, I believe, if I've got my story straight. And he wanders around, he sees they've got idols everywhere, and he confronts those. He speaks about it, Acts chapter 17. Men of Athens, I see that you have idols everywhere. You even have one to an unknown God, in case you've missed one. And this sort of gets, the command to not bow down to these idols gets echoed out. So John writes, uh, the Apostle John writes a series of small letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1st John is 105 verses. I counted them this morning, because I had a little extra time. 105 verses, the 105th verse, the very last verse in his letter. Do you know what it says? I'm guessing you might not have memorized this, but it says, do not worship idols. Keep yourself in the worship of idols. Curious, right? That out of 105 verses, the last thing he says is, hey, don't bow down to idols, by the way. Um, and so these commands, this, it's, this rich teaching around um, avoiding idolatry and worshiping God 
is woven through Scripture. But I think if we imagine idols as something like this, so this is not an idol, actually. It's just a little statue that somebody gave me. But if I were to set this up in my house and burn incense to it and bow down and pray and stuff, you know, you know that would probably seem weird to you. It would be weird. It would, but that's not what we do. And if, as long as we think that idols are like little statues that we worship, then the whole teaching of Scripture on idol worship seems sort of foreign to us and maybe outdated and a little bit ancient. And it's like, well, those are ancient commands given to ancient people, but we, we're a little bit more sophisticated. We don't have idols because, you know, I don't have a statue in my house. I don't have a shrine room. I don't... Let me just read to you. I read, reread part of this book this week. Um, Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods, is a brilliant book. I'll refer to it again in a moment. But let me just read you a tiny excerpt here. What Keller says A counterfeit god or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would hardly, uh, would feel hardly worth living. Hello out there, cell phone. All right? An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and your energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without giving it a second thought. It could be family, children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, great political or social cause, your morality, virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's, we call it, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. Right? What he's poking at, and this book is is, had been very helpful for me to sort of begin to sort of unearth this, is idols are more subtle. We don't set up statues, but we do have things that we fix our attention on. They capture our imaginations. It's all we think about. It's, it's where we pour our resources and our, and our time and our energy. Um, in an article that Keller references, and I read, it's kind of a complicated article, but anyway... Here's what this guy says. This guy's name's Paulson. Give him credit. He says, The deep question of motivation is not what is motivating me. The final question is, who is the master of this pattern of thought, feeling, or behavior? In the biblical view, we are religious, and we're inevitably bound to one God or another. Listen to this. People, he says, you may or may not agree, but he says, people do not have needs. We have masters and lords. And it's worth just pausing a little bit and recognizing the issue of idolatry isn't do I bow down to a physical statue or not, because I don't. The issue of idolatry is a question of where is my deepest allegiance? Where is the focus of my attention? What consumes my thoughts? What consumes my energy, my time, my resources? This is why Jesus, when he speaks on this, he says you can't serve 
both God and money. Can't have two masters, is what he says. And Paul actually fleshes out even a little further when he's writing to the, his Colossian friends, and he says, um, you know, avoid, and he lists a number of things, the final one of which is greed, and then he adds this phrase, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. And what Jesus and Paul and the teachings of the early church sort of begin to unpack a little bit is idols aren't just physical statues. They're the things that, that capture our attention. I've already said it. Now, sometimes that's very clear. I can go, I know exactly what gets my focus and my attention. And I can itemize it. Sometimes it's far more subtle. And it's hard to sort of unpack. Some of you know, uh, you, I didn't know any of you back then, but some of you do know that I was a youth pastor in my early ministry years, uh, great years, actually, uh, from 92 to whatever, 2002 or something like that. Um, for nine, eight, nine or 10 years, I was a youth pastor in Grand Prairie. Um, for the first six of those years, uh, you know, we, we went great guns. Um, we had a fantastic youth ministry in many ways. Uh, and... and I mean, this was all very subtle. Um, I wouldn't have seen it until, well, I did see it later uh, to my own demise. But, I mean, we built a, you know, we chased success and were enamored by the crowds. We had 100 youth come into our youth group. Um, we were running multiple ministry and mission trips. Uh, we were, like, on, on the surface, we were the talk of the town. It's not that big a town. But we, we were successful. We had a Velcro wall. <laughs> so you could wear this Velcro suit and jump on the wall and stick to it. I mean, we were cool. Um, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> I was cool. <laughs> and we chased it. We, we hitched our wagon to that. I hitched our wagon to that. Um, and it's smoke and mirrors, folks. Um, it just is. I, you know, at the end of the day, I completely, completely burnt out chasing that idol. It completely destroyed me. My love for God diminished. And, and uh, you know, the, the church graciously sent me away on sabbatical to sort of allow God to heal my soul. And I look back on all that time, and there were some great moments, okay? I'm not saying that God wasn't able to work in it. But it is subtle. We chased success. We chased looking good. We chased sort of outward stuff. I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it. I would never have called it an idol, but I look back on it and I think, you know, whose kingdom was I really trying to build? Really, if I'm honest, you know, I just wanted to look good. And for a time, it was good. You know, I was almost famous um, in the world of, you know, small town Grand Prairie. Um, but it is smoke and mirrors, and it's very subtle. Um, Jeremiah will say that the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? Which is why I think to sort of unpack what idols are in our lives, we need other Christians, actually. Eugene Peterson's on record as saying that as we progress in the Christian life, the need for spiritual direction becomes greater, not less. You'd think, oh... Spiritual direction is kind of just starting out. You need some help. His argument is you actually need more help the longer you go on in the Christian journey because the subtleties of sin and temptation grow harder to discern. And so we need each other. And that's where I would highlight Keller's book, 
Um, and it's up on Sermons Plus. You can look at it. You can link to it. You can figure out how to buy it uh, and read it. It's, it's a tool. It's not the only thing, but it will help you begin to sort of probe this. This is an important question for us as Christians. It's an important question in the New Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, too. It's an important question in Scripture. Around It's interesting to me that the, the, the talk around idol worship is precisely that. It's around worship. The language around idols is always worship language. You serve God or money is worship language. Do you worship this idol or do you worship the true God? And the question of idolatry ultimately is a question of worship. Who do we worship? What do we worship? And it's interesting, in the, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which many of us kind of choose not to read, but I'm going to encourage, we're, going to, we're going to look at it. We're going to dive into Revelation in the fall. I'm very excited already about it. Um, but Revelation is a letter written to the Christians who are living in, um, in an empire, and the empire gets talked about as Babylon. Same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in Babylon. It's a figurative Babylon. Remember I said Babylon gets is shorthand for, for empires that set themselves up against God? And so in Revelation, the, the, the central motif in the book of Revelation is what? It's worship. The very center of the book is a worship experience that's going on in heaven. And the question that echoes out is, who do you worship? Are you worshiping the one who sits on the throne at the very center of all things? Or are you worshiping something else? Are you worshiping images and idols of the empire? And it's a profound question of allegiance. Whose side are you on? And so we're called to worship God. So it turns out you gathering here this morning, and it's great to see you here this morning, and you gathering online, and I kind of don't see you, but I trust you're there. Christian worship isn't incidental. (laughs) It's not just something you do because it's like, I guess I should go to church this morning. Christian worship is vital. It is a counter-liturgy. It's a counter-story. It's where you come and say, yeah, I, every week I am tempted to, my allegiances are tempted to, to sort of link into this or that, or, the, or I, in fact, do link into this and that. But as I come back to worship, I am reminded that there is one who sits on the throne, who is at the center of all things. And I am called to worship him and him alone. And you see now that the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego isn't just some kind of cutesy Sunday school tale. It actually echoes out in some pretty profound ways. I'm not being asked to to bow down to a physical idol of gold. But every day, I'm tempted to bow down to false stories and narratives and idols and ways of being in my culture and put my allegiance there. And I'm being asked to not bow down to those idols, but to worship God instead. And so this is why this kind of experience is so vital. I need you, and you might even need me. As we worship together, remember there is one who is worthy of our worship. And when we worship that God, 
the God at the center of all things, we actually become more ourselves and the people God has created us to be. Remember, we are to worship the God who has brought us out of slavery. That's the Ten Commandments. That's still the commandment. Worship that God, the one who calls you out of slavery. All right, let me just pause. Let me give you one other piece of this story that I just want to highlight for a moment. Um, so we talked about sort of the familiar story, and then we've, I've tried to unpack maybe what I will call the deeper story, um, and the one that causes us to, to think about, are there other allegiances in our lives? And we're going to come back to that question in a moment. But let me just talk about the untold story for a moment. So the way the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story plays out is they stand up to the king, they don't bow down, they get thrown into the furnace, and they survive. And it's great. It's super awesome. They don't burn up. But um, in its, if you read that story in isolation, you're going to assume that if you don't bow down to idols, if you only worship God, that you'll, that'll all turn out okay. And I think if we place the story into the, again into the larger biblical story, that's not actually the case. And I just want to just highlight it. So Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with Hebrews, you'll be familiar with Hebrews 11. It's that great litany of saints that go before us, Abraham and Moses and and, and Jephthah and all these people that have done great things. But as you, you know, you may or may not have read right through to the end. As you get to the end, here's what the writer says. Um, what more can I say? So he's already told us about all these great heroes of the faith. What more can I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, blah, blah, blah. He says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut mouths of lions, Daniel, quenched the fury of the flame, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and escaped the edge of the sword, who turned weakness into strength, and who, um, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. That all sounds really good. Keep reading. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. That doesn't sound so good. But here's the conclusion. They were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Okay, so sometimes the story doesn't play out as neatly as it did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just want you to be alert to that. Um, we're called to follow Jesus. And worshiping God and following Jesus are, in a sense, two, two sides to the same coin, the coin of allegiance. Do you worship God or an idol? Do you follow Jesus or someone else? It's two sides to the same coin. And as near as I can tell, the call to follow Jesus doesn't come with a lot of guarantees. When, when Peter and after the resurrection, they're walking Jesus and he's... Peter and Jesus are having a conversation after um, Peter has denied him multiple times and, and, and Jesus is trying to rebuild that relationship. 
there's that little interchange about, you know, um, Peter, there's going to be a time when you won't do what you want anymore. People, some other people lead you. And he sort of alludes to Peter's death. And then Peter turns around and says, what about that guy? Presumably John. And Jesus says, doesn't matter. I want you to follow. And that's the call. Sometimes it's like we don't know. We don't get to know. It's not the point. The point isn't we know the outcome. Well, we know the large outcome, but the immediate outcome we may not know. But we are called to worship God. And we are called to follow Jesus. Let me leave you here, okay? There's going to be dangling pieces, but the question I want to leave you with, we're going to put up on a slide. I'm going to invite Sherilyn to come up. And we're just going to pause. I sort of gave you a lot uh, to chew on, I think. And, and I'm not pretending that in the next two minutes you're going to sort this out. This unpacking of where our allegiances lie is a, is a difficult question. And it's not always self-evident. Some things are super obvious. Some things are less obvious. So I'm going to put a question up. And we're just going to look at the question for maybe two minutes, maybe a minute. I don't know. Long enough for you to write it down. That's really what I want you to do so that you can take the question with you into your week. And look up a Christian friend and talk to them about it. I think we'll need help. Or get Keller's book. As I said, it's linked online. And begin to just ask honestly the question before God, God, where do my allegiances lie? Who do I worship? Who do I follow? So here's the question, and Sherilyn, I'll just invite you to start playing and, and, and just take some time with this question, and I'll conclude with a prayer. Has something or someone besides Jesus captured your heart's loyalty, trust, fear, or delight? Right? Has something or someone besides Jesus captured your heart's loyalty, trust, fear, and delight? Just sit with that for a moment. So God, we desire to be your people. And in our best moments, we desire to worship you and you alone. God, I long for that, I really do.
but our hearts are tempted. Our allegiances are uh, pulled different directions. So we need your help to discern where those allegiances lie. To probe, do our allegiances, have they been captured by something or someone else? So God, give us the grace to see. Bring some Christian brothers and sisters into our lives that can journey with us in these deep ways. And give us the courage, God, to turn again toward you and to worship you and you alone, to follow you and you alone. God, may we, by your grace, by your spirit, be your people in the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.